Uh, this has been a great study. I hope that you have enjoyed it as well. I've enjoyed interacting with you guys over this study and topic. And this is one that's not going away anytime soon. So it's one that we need to keep coming back to over and over again. And I would encourage you as well, check out the back table. We've pulled some resources that we think are helpful. It's not every helpful resource that's out there. but And I've already been confronted multiple times because some of you try to keep up with the book of the month. And we have more than one book back there. So you got a lot of reading to do. We're like half over halfway through the month now. So if you hadn't got started, you're probably going to want to get rolling on that. Uh, But we do have a number of uh, resources, and I would encourage you to pick some of these up. If it's not a conversation that you're in the midst of right now, it's probably one that you will be in the midst of, and so there's some really good uh, resources back there, and I've referenced a few of those uh, throughout the study. So we're jumping back into it today, the Bible on gender and sexuality. And so what we'll do today is we'll, we'll press forward with a few points here. We have talked so far about uh, what it means to be human, according to the Bible. And what we did on these first few points, and we'll do this again today, is we're asking these big questions, and then we're saying, what does the culture say about these things? And then what does the Bible say about these things? And doing a little bit of comparison and contrast. And I enjoy your commentary and questions um, as we walk uh, through this as well. I know that some have been keeping up on video, and I've been uh, told that it's hard to track sometimes when commentary starts happening out there. So I will try to repeat questions for the sake of video, but when it gets long, than a paragraph, you know, sorry, you have to be present to win. So here we are. Uh, so we'll, we'll do our best um, to, uh, to try to repeat questions um, and so we can keep uh, everybody up to speed. But I'm, I'm very glad that we have that resource available so that if you miss a week or have to be out of town or something like that, or just want to go back and review some of this, uh, we're very glad to be able to do that. So we've been uh, talking about, we've talked about these on the left side of the screen here, being human, being gendered, being married. We're going to talk a little bit more about marriage and what the Bible says about marriage Today, we left off with that last time, and then I want to spend the remainder of our time talking about the concept of sin and shame. Um, How does the culture define sin? They may not appreciate that term, but I'm going to make the argument that our culture has not lost morality. The question is, what is the moral standard by which we're judging people? Um, And so we'll, we'll interact a little bit with that. We'll talk about the topic of pornography um, at the end, and then we'll talk about this notion of attraction. Some people would make the argument, God has made me this way. He's made me with these particular attractions. And the idea behind that is if God has made me this way, I have this particular attraction. It's sort of endemic to who I am. It's part of who I am. It's in my DNA. Well, then who are you to tell me that I can't act on the way that God has made me, uh, designed me, and you'll hear this argument a lot. So I want to interact a little bit with that. My short answer to that, in case we don't get there, um, which is quite possible, my short answer to that is you have a lot of desires that you shouldn't act on, right? Uh, And so just to say I have a desire, I'm not denying the desire, I'm saying that there are certain desires that you should not act on, Um, you know, and I've... I've, I've used this illustration with you many times, but you might have a desire for Taco Bell every night at 11. Um, you shouldn't act on that desire. Uh, not every night, at least. Occasionally treat yourself, but not every night. It's bad for you. Um, it's, a, it's a desire that you have that's not a good desire to act on um, consistently. And so you may have a desire for another man's wife or another man's husband or another, uh, you, you may have a, any sort of desire. Um, and that doesn't mean that desire is good, though. Uh, and so we 
have to, we have to read, understand our desires in the context of our fallenness and in the context of a fallen world. And we have disordered desires, desires that are not natural to God's created order now. So we have to deal with that in terms of the fall. Okay, so let's, let's talk about it. Uh, just to review, if you haven't been here or uh, just to run this bias one more time, how did we get here? Uh, with this conversation. If you were having conversations now that really would not have made sense 100 years ago, and especially in terms of the trans, uh, transgender ideology, a biological male that says, now I not only want to be like a female, but in fact, I am a woman. That's the difference. Um, you've, throughout the course of time in history, you've always had people, and in the Bible and Old Testament, in Leviticus and other places, it speaks to those, uh, a man should not wear a woman's clothes. You have these types of things, but it's still treating them in terms of the binary, a male and a female. He's saying you shouldn't cross over those lines, but that's not what we're saying now. We're saying that gender is something unique to the individual that has no tie to their biology. Uh, They could be whatever they want, and so that's what we're saying now. How did we get here? You have this rise of individuality, Um, where everything becomes you, the self. And we've seen this huge rise. We talked about that last week. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about this idea of morality. Um, When we talk about morality, it's, it's really interesting because at the same time, you have this rise of individuality, but you also have this sort of corporate identity and social pressure as well, which is establishing morality. It's an interesting day that we live in. We've also talked about this a couple of times, the fact-value division, and how in, this is Nancy Piercy's work, uh, book on the back table, Love Thy Body, she plays this out, which is really taking the thoughts of Francis Schaeffer, a great apologist and pastor. Um, he died in the early 80s, and she was a student of his, taking his thought, pressing it forward, and asking the question, um, how are we thinking today? And, we, and she, she says we have this fact-value division. So facts are things like science, um, temperature, empirical data, things you can measure, see, touch. Those are facts. Values on the top. Um, these are just things that are important to you. And so God has now been kicked to the upper story of this house, if you will. And God, you can't measure him in a lab, right? You can't take a sample put it under a microscope and say, here's God. And so the world and culture is saying, okay, because you can't verify it in those types of means and ways, then it's not really real in the sense that gravity, let's say, is real or some, something else that you can measure. And so God has been kicked to the upper story. And so facts, values, science is on the bottom, God goes on the top. Pull that forward, and now we have sex, biology, chromosomes, XX or XY, you're one of those two, um, except for in very rare uh, situations, and gender now has been kicked to the top story, um, and that's where we end up. When you do that, what you're left with is a gender, not binary, meaning binary is a term that comes from the coding world. Some of you that write code uh, are familiar with binary patterns. It's a one or a zero, uh, you know, computer programmers use this, this vocabulary and language. So, Gender is no longer binary, a one or a zero. Now it's a spectrum. Um, so you can be any number of things and or nothing at all, really. So this is one of the resources that's used now to help kids understand and feel out their gender. You ask questions along these 
five categories here. Your gender identity, what you cho- how you choose to present. Your gender expression, I think those would have some overlap. Your sex assigned at birth, so it's now removed really from biology, but what, what did mom and dad, or mom and mom, or dad and dad, whoever the powers that be that raised you, what did they consider you? How were you, how were you assigned at birth? Not even tied to biology. Again, it's, it's this complete distance now uh, from anything that's scientific. Sex assigned at birth, you're physically attracted to woman, men, or other um, the other genders, meaning that other people that are unicorns as well, non-binary, and then you're emotionally attracted to. And so you go through this, and that's to help you understand yourself and your own gender. And so you see what's happened. Um, we've, you, you separate out gender from sex, biological sex, and then you're left with a spectrum, not a binary anymore. And so I think many people, I mentioned this a couple times, Many people, if you've grown up in a con, uh, conservative, uh, mostly conservative-leaning area, uh, church, you're reading some of this stuff, you're seeing headlines, and you're completely confused. How in the world did we get here? This is how we got here. So this has happened fast, this gender sexual revolution, but it's happened in a very predictable way um, as well. And so when you, when you go back and see how we've we been thinking, this is the fruit. Um, and so this gender ideology stuff, it's the fruit of a worldview that's been growing for a long, long, long time. All right? Uh, Carl Truman's book is very helpful um, in pointing that out. Uh, his book called Strange New World. Uh, Strange New World is the is the, the mortals version. Um, he wrote a bigger book, uh, if, you're, if you're really into it, um, and it's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, so The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is the big one. Strange New World is the smaller version of Truman's book. All right, so that's just catching us up uh, to the speed of the wave here, and hopefully this is getting us in a good place to talk more about what the Bible says um, about these things. So what does the Bible say? I've argued before, and others have argued as well, we can't go along with marriage and a redefinition specifically of marriage because we're not free to redefine it. God has defined marriage, and so therefore, we can only say what the Bible says on these things. There are issues and topics that the Bible does not speak directly to. It does not speak directly to, you know, what your taxes should be, you know, some sort of an income-graded system like we live on now or a flat tax or whatever. The Bible doesn't speak directly to that. There's principles of fairness and uh, principles. I, th- I think there's quite a bit we can pull, actually, like economic principles from the Scripture, but does it speak directly to that, all right? So marriage, on the other hand, it's what's called a straight-line issue. There's other issues like taxes, health care, stuff like that. And what we would say is those are jagged line issues, all right? You can, you can make some inferences from the scripture, but you can't draw a straight line. Marriage is a straight line issue uh, because it, God defines it very early on, actually. So Genesis 2, Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, defines marriage, recording the words of God. It's between a man and a woman. Jesus grabs the same definition when he's asked a question about divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, speaks of male and female in marriage. Paul grabs the same definition, quoting again. And it is interesting and I think helpful to note that Moses, who wrote the original, and then Jesus and Paul 
they grab the original definition of marriage. And so people will point to, hey, you have polygamy in the Old Testament, and you have these corruptions of marriage, and you have this or that. Well, th that's true, and a good conversation for, for another day, but the definition of marriage never changed, man and woman. Uh, it, it never changed. And so that's the one that uh, Jesus and Paul quote from and pull forward. Okay, so what else does the Bible say about marriage? I'll introduce this and then pause for a second if anyone has any thoughts or questions. So marriage in the Bible, four things that I think are important that really summarize the idea of marriage. Complementary, illustrative, making an illustration, exclusive and enduring. And we'll spend a few minutes talking about what we mean uh, by each one of these. So the Bible defines marriage. We talked about that. What else does the Bible have to say about marriage and how marriage is to function and operate? And I think these four principles, four uh, words here, help us to flesh out what the Bible actually has to say about marriage. Any thoughts so far, questions? Everybody clear? We good? Everybody happy? You look happy. You happy? Smile for me. All right, yeah, we're happy, good. David's happy. What time is it, David? <laughs> David's just coming back from Poland. Look, we're, we welcome him back today. Very good. All right. Well, let's move on. If you do have, um, if you do have questions or something you, you feel like would be helpful, uh, please do let me know. All right. So let's talk about this idea of complementary. Uh, what I mean to say by this, I don't want to dig uh, too deeply into what would be uh, called the complementarian position versus egalitarian position on marriage. Um, and what we're saying uh, with those terms, complementarian would mean there is equality recognized between a man and a woman, but there's also roles that are recognized. So there's quality yet distinction. The complementarians would emphasize that. Egalitarians would emphasize the equal nature of men and women. And they would say, uh, depending on, it's a spectrum of sorts, but depending on that, uh, reducing, it would say there's, there's really no fundamental difference. And what you have is uh, roles in church, uh, pastors, uh, that's, that's really the line of demarcation, I think, uh, between egalitarian and complementarian. Um, who, what roles could men and women be in? So that's the discussion around that. We are a complementarian church here. We just talked about this not long ago in Ephesians 5, so I won't spend too much time talking about that. That's not my, that's not my issue here, though. What I really want to talk about here is this idea of man and woman, and there has to be a complement to the other. And it's really interesting. Um, I think this is self-evident in nature, uh, men and women coming together, male and female coming together, um, even in procreation, in the animal world and kingdom. It's evident in attraction. It's interesting to me, it's been pointed out, that we are attracted as men and as women to that which is unlike us in the opposite sex which is really interesting. And I think in a typically, uh, typical situation, um, that is the attraction. Uh, you're attracted to that which is different uh, from you um, in a man or a woman. And so this complementary uh, type of, of approach. Um, so we have this man and woman, they come together, there's compliments, all right? Um, what happens when we start to completely lose the idea of gender roles 
and men and women become sort of Lego parts. You pop one out, pop another one in. Well, now you're losing this idea of the complementary nature of marriage um, altogether. And I think that's contributing to how the world is viewing marriage and understanding it. Let's talk about the, the marriage as an illustration. The Bible often uses the imagery of husband and wife to describe spiritual realities. Um, this, is, this is all throughout the Old Testament. Israel is like the cheating spouse. The father is like the faithful spouse. And then the church is also the bride of Christ. I looked into this a little bit deeper because I knew there were a number of cross-references that did this in the Old Testament. And I wanted to just show you these. I'm not going to read all of them. What happened? What did I do? Did I do that? Here we go. All right. Stuff makes me nervous. Uh, so I just, I just went and I just researched and found verses in the Old Testament that speaks of Israel as a harlot, right? A prostitute. So Israel is conceived as the harlot. And I'm not going to read all these to you. I just want you to see them. Quite a few of these, huh? So it's all over the place um, in the Old Testament. And I won't read, I'll, I'll read just a couple here. Exodus 34, uh, this is after this covenant, or in the midst of this covenant renewal. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. Uh, Leviticus 17, 7. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statue to them. So all of these obviously have a context attached to them. But I just wanted you to see that this is very common terminology, that God is viewed and understood as the faithful bride, the faithful spouse, and then Israel is viewed as the unfaithful one. So marriage becomes this picture of the way God interacts with his people. And I think that's very, very important for us to get and understand. All right, so back to Back to this, so um, Old Testament imagery, and then when we pull to the New Testament, what we have is Paul talks about um, marriage, and he talks about marriage as, and he uses that as an illustration, and says this is how the Lord interacts, Jesus interacts with his bride, the church. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century, you're kind of familiar with the Old Testament terminology, and you're kind of familiar with this illustration of harlotry, adultery, and a faithful and unfaithful spouse. So this language wouldn't have been shocking to you. You would have understood that this is exactly what he's talking about. I think this is important as well. Marriage is patterned after Christ's covenant commitment to the church. And I think we tend to think of it the other way around, that we think Paul is writing thinking, what could, I, what could I use as an illustration that everyone would understand about how Jesus loves his church? Oh, I know, it's like marriage. I don't think that's actually what's happening. I think our marriages, every marriage, is a reflection of the way Christ loves his church. Is it a perfect reflection? Nope. <laughs> Nobody's marriage is. But it's designed to show the world how Jesus loves his bride. Um, the church. That's what your marriage is supposed to do. Now, I get it. There's heartache in marriage. Marriages break. They fall apart. We have the reality of divorce. I get it, but that's what marriage is supposed to be. And so it is an illustration. 
so marriage was given to us so that we can understand Christ's love and commitment to the church. So that is the nature of marriage. So it's complementary and it's an illustration. Any thoughts on that so far? Clear enough? Hadn't made anybody mad yet? At least you're not saying it. That's all right. Okay, um, let's move on then. This relationship is also exclusive. Now, this is where things are starting to expand a little bit in our understanding. Everyone knows, and I'm stating something here that some people would disagree with me on, but I'm going to say it anyways. Everyone knows that marriage is supposed to be exclusive. Everybody knows that. That's why it's called cheating. You ever thought about that? When you cheat on a spouse, you are breaking the rules. That's what cheating is. That's why we call it that. What are the rules? The rules are exclusivity, and you broke it. Everybody knows this is true. They may tell you this isn't true. Everybody knows this is true. And that's why we use the language. So with marriage being expanded, our view of monogamy is being stretched as well. Monogamy, committed relationship, committed couples, and some in the camp of, saying, of arguing for same-sex marriage being okay, they would say as long as it checks these boxes of exclusive and monogamous, there's only one, it's exclusive to this person, and it's monogamous, then it's okay. Um, if as long as there's just one partner, then it's okay. I don't think that works because of the complementary piece that we talked about, but this is, this is stretching us a little bit. On this, and polyamory is becoming more and more popular. Um, You will hear more and more about this. Um, Polyamory just meaning many loves. Um, Thruples is a thing now where you have two of two biological females, one biological male, or vice versa. Thruples or couples living together as couples. Uh, This is this is happening. Um, It's not it's not out there in some land that is far far away. Um, It is happening. It's very very real, and so. It all came down, and it all, it all is the fallout, partly, of what happened with Obergefell, the Obergefell decision, which effectively legalized same-sex marriage. Um, once marriage, once the definition of marriage expanded, once it became elastic to be more than exclusive, permanent, lifelong commitment, man and a woman, once it started to expand, it's not clear how much it can stretch. How, how wide does this rubber band go? Um, as soon as the Obergefell decision was made, there were immediate court cases that were filing for um, polygamy, uh, polyamory uh, types of relationships to be recognized. Because if it's no longer a man and a woman, then it's going to keep expanding out. And I would say this is completely incompatible with the Bible. Um, Just to make that incredibly clear, what does the Bible say about exclusivity? Old Testament passages and New Testament passages Um, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So there was a pretty low tolerance level of of, uh, adultery in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law, Deuteronomy 22. Adultery is one of the reasons given for a biblical divorce, Matthew 19. When Jesus is asked about divorce, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And Jesus says no, and here's where this is oft debated, the exception clause. Um, There are verses in Matthew 19, there are other places like in Mark that don't include the exception clause. 
And so this one has the exception clause, except on the basis of adultery. Um, And so adultery is seen as such a serious sin and such a breach of covenant that it is seen to be able to break the marriage um, in uh, in this passage here. Uh, those who aspire to church leadership must be one-womaned men, kind of interesting phrase. It's not really, we don't really have a, a term that pulls over completely um, into that. It's kind of inclusive of a lot of different things. You must be of, you must be committed exclusively to one woman. And this is a, this one gets interesting, um, especially if you are ever travel to a context where they, um, they do allow polygamy. Um, what do you do when you go to Africa and a guy has more than one wife, which is perfectly allowed in some contexts and places, and now he wants to be, he got saved, and now he wants to be an elder. Like, huh, we got problems. <laughs> and, and so, the, you know, there's different schools of thought on that. Um, one, he should stay with the first wife, divorce the other wife or wives. Others would say, no, Paul says, remain in the condition in which you're called. You stay there, you remain married, but maybe you're not qualified for church leadership. It's an interesting little, uh, little test case um, on this. Point is, when you start expanding out to more than one exclusive, enduring, committed relationship between a man and a woman, it just starts to get really messy. And that's why divorce gets really messy. Um, I do think there are grounds for biblical divorce, and I think it's a mess when it comes apart because it wasn't supposed to come apart. And so that's what it is. And I know uh, divorce has affected probably everyone in this room in some way, um, either directly or uh, maybe indirectly through family, friends, uh, that kind of thing. It's because it wasn't supposed to come apart and it was supposed to be exclusive. And when you start messing with that, it gets messy. Um, And so that's what it is. Okay, uh, among others, adulterers do not inherit the kingdom. These are some strong words by Paul, and he gives a whole list of people. This is, and his, his point there is that if you have committed this sin, um, I'll, I'll read it just to put it in context so that we don't pull, pull some squirrely theology out of this. Paul isn't actually saying. First uh, Corinthians 6. All right, so here's full context. Verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, adulterers, nor idolaters, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But then this is so important. Paul says in verse 11, and such were some of you. All right, so what we're not saying here is that if you've done this once, if you've committed any of these sins, that you are forever barred from the kingdom. That's not what Paul says. He says, such were some of you. This is your history. Don't live in this anymore. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, I'm just using this to point out, Paul identifies these things as sin. What is sin? Sin, those who are sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, practicing homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they, it all goes on the list of things that are in the category of sin. 
all right? And that is what adultery would fall in the category of. So the Bible clearly speaks to exclusivity in marriage. Uh, Christians are not free to practice this open marriage uh, sort of approach that we're hearing more and more about now. All right, I'll pause there for a second. Y'all been quiet today. Making it easy on me. Any thoughts so far? Got it? Yeah, Erica. I just wanted to That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, um, I remembered for the video. Morning. Um, Erica made the comment that if in a lot of these same-sex relationships, uh, what you end up having is uh, one who seems to assume more of a male role and a female role, even if biologically that doesn't even match. Um, somebody was telling me about a relationship that the, there's a biological male, biological female who both identify as the opposite, which is heterosexuality at its base, but they both identify as the opposite and present as the opposite. Um, so yes, I think it's, it's just an interesting thing. So once you start to Again, again, once we, once we move off these biblical definitions of things, once we move off of gender tied to biology, well, that can become anything it wants. And then once we move off of man and woman, male and female, committed to one another, and that starts to expand out, it can turn into any number of things um, as well. So that's a, it's an interesting dynamic uh, that we have going on. All right, so exclusivity, I think it's very important. Uh, we're being challenged on this. It's also enduring, it's enduring. Um, I don't think with the rise of no-fault divorce, um, which was popularized by Ronald Reagan with his first wife in California, was that, that would have been the 60s, I guess, early, mid-60s. Um, and now no-fault divorce is a thing. Uh, you, it's now relatively easy to get divorced, um, and you can get divorced on grounds of incompatibility. And so their marriage is no longer seen as an enduring thing. Um, it might work for a while, and as soon as it stops working for you, remember also the rise of individuality, then it's, it, you, can, you can leave it um, and, and try again. Um, I, think we, I think we've sort of curated this. We've, we've sort of created this uh, to happen um, a lot of times in the way that we view something like dating. Let's just try this for a little while, try that for a little while. Ah, that didn't work. And, and so we kind of pull that mentality and don't take the marriage commitment seriously enough and you, people get married and then they have trouble because marriage is hard uh, and you drive each other crazy sometimes. And my parents, my dad would often say, divorce was never an option for us. Murder, possibly. Divorce, never. He was joking. He was joking. But there, there was this sort of deep-seated commitment to this thing's going to, we're going to make it work. Uh, we're going to see this through. And so that is, that is fading away. Um, and, and so that, that's what's happening. Christ never leaves his bride. Remember, we are an imperfect picture of the perfect marriage of Christ and his bride. And so to whatever extent our marriages are healthy and getting it right, we are a good representation of that. Regardless, we are a representation of that. Maybe not always the best picture, but that's what we're doing. That's what we are. Christ won't leave his bride, Ephesians 5.27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So it's this 
imagery of the bride of Christ being presented one day in the, the elegant gown and in the final day when the, the church is finally sanctified, purified, and, and meets the Lord uh, on the last day. This is a growing idea. I heard about this a few years ago, and it, it just made me laugh because of the way it was written. Uh, this was a Washington Post article. It said, maybe it's time for a wed lease. All right, just process that for a minute. Um, wedlock, not needed anymore. Let's try a wed lease. Uh, just like buying a car. Um, you don't need to get stuck with the lemon. Um, if it doesn't work out for you and it's a lease, you, well, it's not mine. Uh, so the author says, the messiness of divorce is avoided and the end can be just as simple as vacating a rental unit. Um, that's not how marriage works. We all know that. We all know that. Intuitively, you know that. The world intuitively knows that. They're trying to convince themselves that this is how it works. It's not. Everybody knows that. A wed lease could also imitate a real estate lease through the use of security deposits. Each spouse could deposit a sum of money with an independent third party to ensure compliance with the wed lease. And so you, basically it's a business arrangement. You come into with a spouse rather than a lifelong commitment enduring to one another. And so this is going to gain ground, uh, these types of ideas. Um, this is just putting a name on what is already happening. Uh, we know that is true. So I think we, we as Christians, we need to stand against this type of thing. So big picture, why are we so concerned about this? A few summary thoughts. We get gender and marriage wrong. Women are harmed. I mentioned that earlier, and we spent a, quite a bit of time talking about that last week. And it's, it's like a news story every week right now of, you know, a woman and, and men, uh, particularly biological males that are competing in women's sports. Um, we're seeing that over and over again. It doesn't generally go the other way. So women are, are harmed, disproportionately harmed when we get gender wrong. We get gender and marriage wrong. It's bad for society and human flourishing. There's a reason the state is actually interested in marriage. Um, why would the state be interested in just two really good friends who decide to live together. They're not interested in that. Um, they're interested in commitments that are lifelong, enduring, and geared to a specific end, a good of having children, because that's the next members of your society. So the state has historically been interested in this issue of marriage because of that. And so we would say the building block of society, the very basic building block of society, all the way back in Genesis, starts with family and builds out from there. And so even if you don't love Jesus, you don't believe the Bible's true, I would still make the case that marriage, lifelong committed marriage between a man and a woman, will produce the best fruit for society. Um, and I think that is universally true. When we get gender and marriage wrong, God is dishonored because this is something he has spoken to in his word. Again, it's a straight line issue, not a jagged line issue. We're not just taking some inferences um, and implications of the Bible. We are saying what the Bible says. I think very clearly it speaks to it. We get gender and marriage wrong. The gospel is obscured. And that's, I say that because of what we just talked about with the way that Paul uses the illustration of Jesus and his bride and how we are brought into union with Christ. And so when you, when you start to mess with that, it becomes a less and less and less and less perfect picture, good picture, fair representation of Jesus and his bride. So I think it's a huge problem. So let's move along. Uh, we talked about being human, gendered, 
married, I want to talk about this issue of sin and shame. And this may be something that you've thought about a lot, um, maybe not so much, but I think this is really important. Because as soon as you start talking like this, and you start talking about gender is fixed, it's biological, marriage, you can't just marry anybody and everybody you want, um, it's actually between a man and a woman, it's exclusive, it's enduring, you start talking like that, people are going to tell you all kinds of terrible things. They're going to tell you you're hateful and you're a bigot and you're close-minded and you're stuck in the past and you're on the wrong side of history and they're going to they're give you all of that. So let's talk about this idea of sin and shame. So my question I'll start us with here is, are right and wrong real? Kind of an interesting question, maybe not one that we think about a ton. Are right and wrong real? Is there such a thing actually as right and wrong? Or is it completely socially conditioned? We say something is right or wrong just because everybody else says it's right or wrong. Um, What is right and wrong, really, at the root of it? It's an interesting question. So according to the culture, how do we answer the question of what is right and wrong? Although culture changes, humans do not have the option to not be moral agents, right? Everybody's moral. The cancel culture is a highly moral system. Notice, I want to be careful with what I say here. I didn't say it's fair. I didn't say it was right. I said it's moral, meaning it's making moral judgments for good or bad. It's making moral judgments all the time. If you want an example of moral outrage, I can give you a list of topics or words to post on social media, and they will find you, I promise. All right, so Ocean is open, a social media account, you know, Twitter, Facebook, or get on that tic-tac, as one of Jacob's coaches says. Is that on that tic-tac? I think those are the mints, but regardless. And if you post a series of things, videos, um, unpopular opinions, maybe about some of the things that we've been talking about, um, they will find you. Because we live in a moral universe, you cannot avoid it. And so my question is, where did we get the moral universe? And what do you do when the moral universe now disagrees from the moral universe, let's say 200 years ago, on some important topics? What do you do? Like, what, if, if morality is simply culturally defined, what do you do? So culture practices... A version of what we call moral relativism. This is a view that says there, there is no universal or absolute sta- uh, set of moral standards. So morality is relative and can change depending on the situation or circumstance. So what's right at this point in time might not be right five years from now. It might be right for you, but not for you. And so it's relative to the moment, the context, the people you're around. Uh, that's what moral relativism relativism says. So culture then would decide what's right and wrong. And this, the contrasting position would be an absolutism. There's some nuance to this as well, which says there are universal principles of right and wrong uh, spanning across all times and cultures. All right. And this is getting us into a study of ethics. Uh, one of these days I want to do a full-blown like ethics class. Wouldn't that be fun? Some of y'all are like, yep. And some of y'all are like, let me know when that's happening. <laughs> I'm going to be busy. <laughs> so uh, I think it would be a lot of fun, uh, actually, to kind of take this apart. And what is, what is right and wrong? Because I think, I think this is so key to the, to the argument that we can have. So with this mindset of moral relativism, people will use the Bible still, but they use it in a way that advantages them, and they only see what they want to see. 
something like this is what ends up happening. That's how we read the scriptures today. Um, Judge not. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. Well, did you read the end of Matthew 7 where he talks about the judgment and some are going to eternal punishment and some aren't and there's a narrow gate and a wide gate and you don't want to be on the broad road. You want to be on the narrow road. And so if you read the rest of the context of this, the whole chapter is about the notion and idea of judgment. And so he's not saying don't judge. He's saying judge rightly and don't hold people to a standard and, and don't be hypocritical in your judgment. And, and we'll, we'll talk more about that um, in a moment. So that's, that's not what he's, that's not the, the whole of what the Bible says um, about that. So right and wrong, morality, becomes both highly individualistic and socially conditioned. And so here's, here's what I mean by that. Um, it's highly individualistic, but it's also socially conditioned. So you have to find your truth, speak your truth, um, live your truth, and that part is very individual, but it's only, it's only that within some limits. You're also given boundaries of your freedom. It's just such an interesting thing to me, um, sort of like being on an airplane. Um, how free are you really on an airplane? Like, well, you know, when the captain turns off the fasten seatbelt sign, like, you're free to roam about the cabin. And I feel like culturally, people say, oh, you're free, speak your truth. But there's some walls, and you're in this flying tube, and you really can't get out of it, though. <laughs> like, oh, no, 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 you can't open that door. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Oh, wait, no, you can't do that. But speak your truth. It's like, well, what if my truth says I want to open that door and get out of this plane? Like, well, you can't do that, though. And so that's an interesting thing is it's very individualistic, but it's individualistic in the context of these tracks that you sort of have to run on. And so it's very limited as well. Alan Jacobs wrote a book a couple years ago that I think is so helpful. It needs to be required reading for students. Um, I have it in one of my classes next year. Uh, and, and for all of us, it would be helpful as well. Um, Alan Jacobs, is, he's writing from a Christian perspective, but it's not an not a exposition or theology book necessarily. Um, it's a little bit more, a little bit more social uh, commentary, and it's, it's this guide on how to think is what he calls it. So get, grab this thought and see what you think of it. To think independently of other human beings is impossible. And if it were possible, it would be undesirable. When people commend someone for thinking for herself, they usually mean ceasing to sound like people I dislike and starting to sound more like the people I approve of. Is that true or what? <laughs> They're an independent thinker. They think for themselves. That just means they agree with me now. Like, that's all that means. And so you can't actually avoid this whole group think thing at some level, you are agreeing with someone and you're disagreeing with others. And so people that we hail as, they're such an independent thinker. Like, are they, or did they just change teams and you like them now? Um, that's probably more uh, what's going on. So this is, this is how people think. So individuality plus this moral relativism, which is sort of socially conditioned, and that's sort of the cocktail that's creating this I can be whatever gender I want to be. I can marry who I want to marry. I can love who I want to love because that's all within the framework of what you're allowed to be true to yourself in, right? Is that, is that coming together, making a little bit of sense for us? Not asking if you agree necessarily, but is it coming together? And so what's happening now 
is the Christian perspective and the lines that we draw are just way too narrow because society says they're, they're broader than, than you bigots, um, you hateful people who are saying these really old things. Time has run past you and history is going to record you as being on the wrong side of reality and on the wrong side of history. Uh, moral relativism um, has problems um, and these are kind of self-evident, but I want to go through it uh, for just a moment. So moral relativism has problems. There's no sufficient basis for morality. So why is something right and wrong? Um, Is there a universal standard? What if in 200 years from now we think something totally different is right and wrong? Um, How do you explain that? And it goes back to my original question. Is it real then if it can change? Um, Is there a basis for it or not? Can science explain morality? I think this is a dead end road. I've quoted him before, but I I can't help, Peter Singer always comes to mind. He's a Princeton ethicist. And he's asked the question about the relative value of of life. And so on what basis then could uh, could they say that the life of a profoundly intellectually disabled human being with intellectual capacities inferior to those of a dog or a pig is of equal value to the life of a normal human being? This sounds like speciesism to me. And as I said earlier, I've yet to see a plausible defense of speciesism. After looking for more than 40 years, I doubt that there is one. And so the question was asked about profoundly disabled um, individual, uh, someone with Downs or something else, that they have profound intellectual incapacities. And he says, in effect, um, a healthy dog or pig is of more value because they're of more value to society. This person with profound intellectual incapacity, they're just going to be a drain on society. They're going to use society's resources as opposed to this animal that's living up to the potential of what it could possibly be or do. Um, And so science then, according to Peter Singer, I think he's actually being consistent with his worldview, which I appreciate. Um, He's playing it out all the way. Time and chance universe, strictly Darwinian evolutionary uh, thought and theory. I think he's actually consistent uh, to where this will, this will lead you in the end. So I don't think science can explain morality. What about society then? Can that explain morality? What do you do when society gets morality wrong? Maybe a too easy of an example, but a couple hundred years ago in these United States, we had slavery the practice of shadow slavery, where one human being could own another human being and enslave them. Wasn't completely race-based, primarily race-based slavery. And I think most of us would look back now, all of us in this room, I'm positive, most people in the United States today at least, would look back and say, society got it wrong. Society largely said that this was an okay thing to practice and do. So what did they get wrong though? If morality is simply derived from the culture and context that you're living in. So what is morality then? Is it something that's only relevant to the time? And so the people that were owning slaves and mistreating slaves, they weren't doing anything wrong because it was just their property. And society said that was okay. The law said that was okay in that context. So was there a real transgression against a real moral law that happened or not if society said it was okay? You get the dilemma. Um, Is it real? So are right and wrong real? So there has to be a moral standard above science and society. Cue C.S. Lewis. We gotta talk about C.S. Lewis when we talk about the moral law. It's just part of it. Lewis had this problem, and he said that God can't be real 
because when he was nine years old, he lost his mom to cancer. It was devastating for him. He was very close to his mom. He had a distant relationship with his dad. Uh, His brother goes off to boarding school. He's left kind of alone. He's not a cool kid. He's not athletic. Uh, He's the kid standing in the corner with a book. Um, He's, and he's just kind of lost. And he says, God can't be real because if God were real, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And so he lives this way for years. Um, And then he kind of has what we could say is two conversions. I use that term in a non-theological way. He has a conversion to theism, where he finally recognizes there has to be a God, and then his second conversion, if you will, was a conversion to Christ, believing Jesus was a Messiah. So he lived in this period of time for a minute where he believed that God was real, but he called himself the most reluctant convert in all of England. He said, I didn't want to believe that God was real, but I had to because of this argument. And then eventually I came to believe that Jesus was a Messiah. So he converted to theism, started looking around at world religions and said Christianity is the most plausible out of all of them and then believed Jesus was a Messiah. So him writing about that in Mere Christianity, book one, consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should not have found out that it has no meaning. Um, And so he goes on to explain what that is. It can't explain the category of right and wrong. Um, Society can't explain the category of right and wrong. Um, And you'll get into this conversation. You tell somebody, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And they'll say, well, I think you're wrong. Why is that wrong? Well, because, I mean, Supreme Court ruled on it. It's like, well, what if Supreme Court got it wrong? Well, Supreme Court's right on this one. It's like, what about the Brown-Scott decision? What about, I mean, what about any number of decisions, uh, you know, in the past where we think the court actually got it wrong? And so what's your basis then for morality? And you start pushing back on that. Uh, Lewis says, we call a cancer bad, they would say, because it kills a man. But you might just as well call a successful surgeon bad because he kills the cancer. It all depends on the point of view. So what is morality? Um, And who gets to decide what actual right and wrong is? And that's where Christians, I think, we really have the upper hand in this because we're holding to a definition that's thousands of years old on gender and sexuality and marriage. So we have this thing called sin. The Bible speaks of a category. There is moral authority to the scriptures. It does speak to these things. We could define sin as this, any lack of conformity, active or passive, to the moral law of God, act, thought, or inner disposition. It's a lack of conformity. And this helps us a little bit. That's why we call it the fall. The fall indicates the point at which humans failed to conform to God's moral law. And this is useful when we talk about the existence of evil. People say, well, if God's holy and he's true and right and he's perfect, then who created evil? But you kind of beg the question, actually, when you say, who created evil? Because is evil a thing to be created? Sort of like saying, look at that tree that's not there. So the, the fall was a lack of glorifying God. Um, it's when humanity first ceased to be what they should be. And so it's a, it's a not living up to. They fall short of the glory of God, all right? And that's why we call it the fall. So morality is real. The Bible talks about morality, and the Bible calls some things sin. Sexual activity outside the union of man and woman in marriage is considered sin, and there's a number of verses here. Um, I'm going to stop there, uh, leave it open just for comments, questions for our last couple of minutes here, and amazingly, I've made it through most of my slides today, which is, you know, pretty amazing. So 
the Bible does have a category of sin, and it does put things like uh, same-sex marriage, uh, same-sex uh, practicing uh, same-sex sexual acts, uh, things like pornography, I think they all belong in the category of sin, and I think those are real categories. All right, thoughts? Yeah, Carl? So that's a really interesting question. Uh, question is uh, about when did the state get involved in the act of marriage, um, adjudicating what is marriage and what is not? And then is there anything biblically that would necessitate that they practice that? Um, I don't know about the history. I mean, I think it's been around as long as I can remember. Uh, Ryan T. Anderson wrote a book uh, called Truth Overruled. And he wrote a book before that. I can't remember. But Ryan T. Anderson has done a lot of research on that. Uh, He's a Stanford grad. Uh, He's a Catholic thinker. And he's writing, he does write theologically, but he's writing more like sociologically, philosophically, um, about that. And he asked that question, like, why is the state engaged? So I would say the state, biblically speaking, I don't think there's a verse of scripture that you would say the state has to weigh in on what marriage is. Um, and so the question is, why is the state even engaged in that, involved in that? And should we even listen to the state um, on those things? So, but the state has spoken um, to that, but there's no biblical necessity. But to my knowledge, it's states have weighed in on what marriage is and who is married in the United States for as long as we have. Um, that's an interesting question, like historically. Yeah, Brigham? Maybe so. Maybe so. Brigham, you got information on that? Yeah, that's probably right. And there was this conflation. You know, we draw our little circles sometimes. We have the, the state the church, the family, you know, in the, in the medieval times, and this was part of, you know, the Reformation conversation, um, the state and the church had sort of melded together, um, and marriage was one of those issues you could get, you, the state could try you for a capital crime for heresy, um, and so it wasn't healthy when the ch- ch- church and the state <laughs> uh, mixed together. Um, you know, I've joked before here, we don't call the police if we have a heretic, um, we deal with that internally, you know, amongst our church elders, um, Fortunately, you know, I'm not calling Atlantic Beach police, telling them there's an anti-Trinitarian here. Uh, they don't believe in the Trinity. They, they denied the hypostatic union. Can you believe that, guys? You need to send somebody over here right away. Be like, sir, are you okay? Is there a threat? Like, they don't care uh, because we have these clear bubbles. Um, but marriage is one of those that, that does cross over. You know, it's, there's a Venn diagram here of state responsibilities, church responsibilities, and there, there's definitely a crossover there um, with marriage, but I don't know the whole history. That's an interesting question. Final comment, question? Yeah, Hannah. Yeah, um, goodness gracious. You're going to ask me that at 9.59? Um, <laughs> it's awesome. So, uh, biblical grounds for divorce, um, we would hold to, there's two specific clear biblical grounds for divorce. Um, one would be the passage I mentioned earlier, Matthew 19, um, adultery. Um, uh, so that, that would be first grounds for biblical divorce. Uh, second grounds, I would say, is 1 Corinthians 7, uh, where you have abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And there's a very specific set of circumstances there that are outlined. Um, so those, I would say, are the two, uh, two carve-outs, um, if you will, for biblical grounds for divorce. That deserves a more full treatment, um, but uh, those are the those are the two clear ones. Um, and the, one of the questions around Matthew 19 is: yeah, Is this a because of the hardness of heart? 
Jesus says, because of the hardness of heart. And so was he leaving the door open to, this is one way the hardness of heart is illustrated uh, through adultery, or is this the hardness of heart equals adultery? Um, and so that's where I think Paul's writing comes in helpful as well. Um, so those, those are the two grounds. Um, and the categories to me, I've told people this a hundred times, the categories of biblical grounds in my mind are clear. The situations are never clear. Um, again, it's unscrambling an omelet. It wasn't supposed to come apart. It's gonna be messy. But, so I think we have biblical guidance. And then we, we just have to put the data in front of people and tell them they have to act on their conscience before the Lord. Um, and, and so I wanna be careful as a pastor and we wanna be careful as elders. I don't want to bind the conscience of anyone um, in a way that steps beyond what cl- is clear in the Bible. Um, but I want to say what the Bible says, and then I have to put that on the conscience of the individual um, as well. In two minutes. All right. Okay, That's, uh, that really does deserve a, a pretty, a more robust answer, but um, we'll have to leave it there. All right, we kept ourselves out of trouble, I think, for the most part. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for some time that we can spend together talking about these very important issues. Um, help us to be compassionate and kind, uh, convictional but with compassion, and that we would handle these conversations with much dignity and grace, understanding that people are trained in a very different way of thinking uh, than what maybe many of us have grown up with and understand. Uh, Lord, help us, to be, uh, help us to have these conversations in a way that honors you and uh, shows dignity and respect. Uh, we pray that you would help us to do that but at the same time, uh, not, not bending on what your word says. Uh, we need your grace to do that, so we pray that you would help us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.